This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, with more modular housing for the homeless announced in Vancouver and more expected in the suburbs, how much opposition can proponents expect? Plus, Ontario gets tough with municipalities demanding more and faster housing proposals. Are there lessons for BC? Plus, the price of sugar-free are sweeteners as harmless as we thought. And Avatar The Way of Water charts course to be the biggest global box office opening. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Yesterday, the province and the city of Vancouver unveiled a plan to build 90 modular housing units to help alleviate homelessness in the downtown east side. We had Housing Minister Ravi Kela on the program, as well as Vancouver Mayor Ken Sim. Now, the two units will open in March of 2023 and be in operation for at least three years. The province is providing just under $7 million for the project, while the city is providing the land. And they hope uh, by opening these modular housing units, they can hopefully shut down those tent cities that you see on Hastings. Street and at Crab Park uh, as well. Now, yesterday, Housing Minister Ravi Kailan also said on this show to expect more announcements similar to what uh, they announced yesterday in other Metro Metro Vancouver communities in the new year. Take a listen. We're taking on uh, this issue in a very serious way and a slightly different way. As you mentioned, we're uh, passed legislation to set targets. We have now the power to step in if communities are not uh, meeting their targets, which I think is a pretty bold move uh, and a little edgy. Uh, and I'll have to say that most of the mayors I've talked to say, hey, you know what, we're ready. We're ready to make play our uh, role to make sure we have the housing online. We passed legislation earlier this year that basically said that if you come forward with a project that's already part of the community plan, that you don't have to go through all the hoops. You don't have to go through all the council hearings. And so we've made that process easier. Premier Eby's already laid out a whole host of initiatives uh, in his uh, election campaign that uh, will actually drive more speed into the process and get a lot more supply on. But I agree with you. Supply is going to be the biggest issue. I'm talking market housing. I'm talking non-market housing. Uh, and uh, and you'll be seeing a whole host of things uh, very early in the new year. That was Housing Minister Ravi Kale. Now, one such community that has welcomed modular homes is uh, in Chilliwack, even though there was plenty of pushback from residents initially. Joining me now to discuss the need for more housing is Ken Popov, the mayor of Chilliwack. Ken, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome, Mr. Joel. I appreciate the call. Uh, now, yesterday we had uh, the housing minister and the mayor of Vancouver on, on the program. They, along with the premier, uh, announced uh, uh, two modular housing uh, units that will be brought in in and around the downtown core for March of 2023 uh, to provide at least 90 housing units uh, for those experiencing homelessness uh, with wraparound services, they say. Uh, your community, uh, and they've said that, look, there's going to be other communities around the Lower Mainland uh, where this hopefully will be introduced as well. Now, your community has some experience, and that's one of the reasons I want to chat with you about it. Uh, how would you, first first of all, your your thoughts on what they're trying to do in, in and around downtown Vancouver. Do you think it's the right way to go? Absolutely, absolutely. I'm a strong, strong proponent of, of the Housing First, pro, you know, program, 
strategy, if you will, with the wraparound services, uh, the first thing that you need to do is get these folks into a safe, secure place so they can start to work on their issues. So, yes, we've been a proponent of that and, and uh, um, will always be. When did your community first introduce its first uh, modular housing uh, project? Well, we've got a couple here already. Um, the first one's probably been around five years, six years ago, something like that. And that houses around 48, 49 folks. And then um, a few years later, we, we got our second one. Uh, the same sort of uh, um, criteria there with the numbers and, and the wraparound services. So um, we work with BC Housing and, and we partnered up. Uh, land in lieu, uh, you know, we didn't charge them the DCCs and setups and that sort of thing. So we've, we are highly invested in these units to help folks out get them off the streets and get them you know back in society uh there is usually with all these projects concern sometimes stiff opposition uh how did things go in your community when when the when the idea of modular housing units and the homeless um being housed there how how was it um taken in the community well it's no it's no different here either the nimbyism is is alive and well um, every time these have to come to a public hearing and, and, and the pushback that, that we get, um, sometimes is, is a little hard to, to, uh, actually fathom, but, but, uh, um, there are some folks out there that just don't believe in these kind of places. And, and, uh, we as a city and as a council, we do, um, we have a third one that's, that's, um, waiting in the wings, sort of speak. And, and we expedited all the, all the rezoning applications that were needed to proceed with this. And it's, um, it's still not going. We had a meeting with uh, BC housing and I was assured uh, uh, as what a month ago that we'd have some troubles in the ground, but that has not happened yet. So it's, it's, uh, it's discouraging. It's disappointing. Um, we've done all the right things on our end, but uh, it's just been stalled on, on, on BC housing's end. Mm-hmm. Uh, the folks that uh, opposed the first or second modular uh, projects, did many of them come around uh, with a bit of time and seeing how these things work, or is it just sort of a, a sort of a baked-in opposition that will always be opposed to these modular housing units? Yeah, it's you know it's a bit of both. Um, some folks, after you do educate them on on what these facilities are actually doing for these these folks that are you know experiencing homelessness, um, it, typically they do tend to come around. But there's always a a a uh, like a force that's out there that that you know totally opposes anything to do with that. It's more like just you know ship them out of town. Well, these people are you know. Chilliwack folks that I want to help and we will continue to help them. Now, Mayor Popov, what things need to improve on the BC housing and uh, provincial government side to expedite these projects and get them approved as fast as possible? Well, if I can find the answer, Jazz, I'd be all over it because <laughs> we've, we've had uh, numerous contacts. We've, 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 we've talked to them. We've, 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 you know, like I say, we've done all the back work. We took the, you know, like the shots in the back from the neighborhood to get this thing expedited and get it going, and it is stalled. I'm not sure if it's stalled now. I know they had some, uh, their their board chair stepped aside, and, and 
a lot of the other folks that were sitting at that table are now not sitting at the table. So I'm not sure, but it's something that, that it's, it's frustrating. I mean, like I say, like if you had an idea how I can get this thing going, I would, <laughs> I would certainly be all over it. Well, my, my, my initial uh, response to that would be pick up and call the brand new Minister of Housing and make him come out there because that, that's his role now. And we haven't had a Minister of Housing for, for a long time in this province. I think that's probably the, the first person to go to because it's one of the things he said on our show yesterday was, hey, um, we're going to need more of these, uh, not just in the Vancouver, uh, Vancouver proper, but throughout the lower mainland around these in around the province. So that's probably the way to go. But, uh, you know, one of the reasons yep. I want to talk to you today was that we did have a caller yesterday say, look, things are going well in, in Chilliwack in the sense that we got two built and they're doing what they were supposed yep. to do. Is there any advice you'd give to um, suburban mayors and probably interior mayors as well that do have to deal with the slings and arrows and uh, the, at times, organized opposition to these projects, what advice would you want to give them to get more of these modular housing units built? You know, the more communication that you could give to the general public about what these units are actually doing is, is in my opinion, is the way to go. Um, you'll always have opposition. You'll always have nimbyism. That's, that's just the fact of life. But, uh, um, get all your information. Um, I, I, I encourage mayors that do not have any of these units to, you know, shoot me an email or shoot me a call. I'll, I'd be glad to, you know, sit down and talk with you and, 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 you know, share my experience and, and my council's experience with these type of units and moving forward with them. So it's just, it's all about communicating. Yeah. Uh, to me, it's, 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 it's really important. And, and just, you know, it's funny, you, you, you talked about the minister, he has actually booked some time with me actually tomorrow. I think he's coming out here to have a little chat. So um, uh, I, I kind of smiled when I seen that come across my desk. Oh, that's perfect timing. I'll have a little chat. And see <laughs> yeah. if you can do that. You me- things for us. Yeah, you mentioned, you mentioned to him that uh, we were talking about it live on the show too. So that that hopefully will light a fire under him as well. <laughs> uh, I, well you might be doing it, I'll do that. Before. Yeah, go <laughs> for it anytime. Uh, final question to you. I mean, uh, for these uh, the two that you have already, uh, was there wraparound services for mental health and addiction? I mean, these projects don't work. And if you just put up a physical building uh, without these services, were you able to get wraparound services as well? Yeah, yeah, they do provide that. Um, I I don't feel it's enough. I know the the province announced that um, in our in our newest or our our bill that hasn't actually started to be built is um, is going to have twenty two. Uh, um, complex care beds as well. Um, I'm, I'm not sure how that's going to look. It, it certainly is a need. Um, so, the, you know, for me, that was a, uh, put a smile on my face to see them moving forward with that. I, I, you know, communicate with Victoria Lee, the CEO of Fraser Health, on, you know, quite often. And, and, and uh, this came through the channels here just a couple of days ago. So that's a good thing. We need far more. There's no question. We are, uh, you know, folks on on the downtown east side. They're they're actually starting to show up at this end of the valley, and and uh, um, with what's you know what's going on in Vancouver, it's we were we were kind of worried that that might happen, but it 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 certainly has happened. I I talk with our 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 bylaw and our private security people that work, and they you know communicate with these folks and. 
where do you come from? Yeah, we come from Vancouver. So, yeah. And, they, and, and why are they choosing Chilliwack or the Valley? Is it a, a case of safety coming out of Vancouver? I'm just curious, what attracts them to your community? You know, it's hard to get a, a, a straight answer. Um, some comes, a, you know, because of here it's, you know, there's like a lot of services provided here. There are, are beds provided out here. Uh, maybe on the service side, that's true. But on the bed side, it certainly is is not um all our shelter beds are full and uh um i i encourage them to you know stay in their community where they have their supports their family that sort of thing and 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 get help that way but uh um you know this isn't solvable this is this is manageable and and you know i'm pretty proud of what we've done but we still got to keep going with this it's just this is we can't sit back and just and, and think okay we're good it, that's not the case. We have to keep working on this. Well, Ken, I really appreciate your time. Like I said, a caller uh, on the open line let us know about the work you guys are doing out there and wanted to chat with you today. Uh, as always, I always appreciate your time and uh, look forward to chatting with you after your meeting uh, with the new housing minister tomorrow. And uh, hopefully there's some good news for, for you and your community as well. Thank you once again. Okay. And don't uh, uh, hesitate to reach out. you got my cell number now and if you have more information or whatever i i love to talk and communicate not a problem thank you so much have yourself a good day and and merry christmas you too yeah right 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 back at you thank you very much after over a decade away the avatar franchise is finally headed back to the big screen this coming weekend it looks like it might have a pretty monumental impact according to the newest box office projections avatar the way of water is on track to gross 525 million dollars in its opening weekend uh, these projections hypothetically include 175 million dollars for uh, domestically which is the US and Canada market and 350 million dollars overseas this would be uh, monumental beyond the first film's domestic opening uh, weekend performance back in 2009 when Avatar, the first Avatar, made $77 million. Avatar The Way of Water will be the long-awaited follow-up uh, to director James Cameron's 2009 movie. Now, previews for the movie began at 3 p.m. today, so just over half an hour ago right here in Vancouver. Joining us now to discuss the release is Rick Forchuk. He's a movie blogger at Rick's Picks and a regular columnist for TV Week magazine. Rick, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jazz. It's great to be here. Well, uh, you know, when you think about uh, a movie event, and we haven't really had a movie event in a long time, I guess Avatar would probably be that one movie uh, that may actually get people back uh, into movie theaters again. Yeah, as a matter of fact, they're almost there now. (laughs) I had a look before we talked at um, just what the pre-sales are around local theaters in in our area. Uh, around the Lower Mainland, and uh, most of them are well anywhere from half to two-thirds full already uh, with pre-sales of tickets. Now, that's the bigger theaters that have got the full meal deal. That's AVX, the big screen, the big sound, maybe the IMAX. Uh, there are some smaller theaters in the multiplexes that uh, aren't selling quite as well. Most of the ones not in 3D and not with the big sound, big screen. So if you want to see this film, you want to see it in the best way possible. And I would uh, recommend that you do so in 3D uh, because James Cameron invented a whole new kind of 3D for the original Avatar. And that's only been enhanced for this movie. And you want to hear the sound and you want to see this movie in the best way possible. So, Jazz, I think that this one is going to have people flocking 
for the movies for the next, oh, probably three to four weeks minimum. Why did it take so long to get this sequel out? I mean, Hollywood loves sequels, uh, and they come out pretty quickly if a movie is done well. Avatar has done well, did well, the original did well. Uh, Why is the sequel taking so long, or why did it take so long? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, First of all, James Cameron, uh, a Canadian, by the way, is an amazing perfectionist at the work he does. He's not just a director, and he's not just a writer. He's also a technician. He creates stuff. Uh, He invented the cameras that are used for the kind of 3D that Avatar is done with. Now, after the first movie, uh, having had such great reviews and such fabulous success at the box office, he began with the Avatar The Way of Water, uh, this meaning most of the scenes take place underwater, and he found that his existing equipment didn't quite do the kind of job he wanted to do. So he was back to the inventor's bench, creating new hardware and new software, and uh, that took a long time. And he's also a perfectionist when it comes to story. So as he went through various iterations of the shooting, uh, he wanted to be certain that he had it right. A lot of things got thrown out. A lot of new things got put in here. And um, Cameron is also shooting three total Avatar movies at the same time. So there are two other sequels that are being shot at the same time as this one was being done. So he wasn't really working on one movie, Jazz. He was really working on three at the same time. Now, that's not unprecedented. The Lord of the Rings movies were done the same way. Uh, Some of the Star Wars movies were done that way, too. Uh, But this one, uh, yet took longer than anybody expected, James Cameron as well. It's an expensive movie. The original budget was uh, set for about $250 million, but it looks like it's going to clock in around $350 million. Hard to say. We won't know until the final numbers are revealed. But that's a long answer to your very short question about why so long, Jazz. Well, here's a, a short question to an incredibly long movie. Three hours and 12 minutes. Uh, that's uh, yes. uh, it would be considered excessive by a lot of uh, Hollywood executives, but... Uh, I guess in regards to waiting this long and the story itself and then the technology used for the story, from what I've read from reviews or most reviews, that it's actually worth it and it it really is a a visual feast. It is a visual feast. What I did is I went back to Disney Plus and I watched the first Avatar because it's been 13 years since that movie came out and uh, I probably haven't seen it in 10. And I was amazed at how little I remembered of the original movie other than I remembered it as being spectacular, and I remembered the 3D as being something that you were uh, completely enveloped in rather than just watching from afar. And I did not recall many of the plot points. So uh, for those who have Disney Plus, or if you want to download from iTunes or any of the other ways that you get a movie, uh, you may want to see the original before you go to this one, because the sequel does pick up kind of where the last one left off. And um, I, I was just just absolutely gobsmacked at how much I enjoyed the original Avatar again. So I really look forward to the new one, Jazz. And yeah, long movie, three hours plus. That's a long time to be sitting there. Uh, you need to make sure that uh, you don't drink too much water or <laughs> any of those great big, uh, great big uh, movie pops when you go in there. Otherwise, you're going to be filing out because it's uh, it's a long one. Yeah, and the plot itself uh, takes place a decade after the events of the first Avatar. So in many ways... Uh, it is moving just like just like the movie in regards to taking time to, to, to produce it. I guess Cameron is one of those rare director-producers and probably a select few actors 
who still have uh, the power to say no, and executives, um, uh, movie studio owners and, and executives themselves have to listen to him. And I, there's not many left that can actually dictate, uh, in regards to talent, what can or cannot go on the air and when they decide to move forward, isn't it? I mean, right now, you just don't have many stars anymore that can have that clout and power in Hollywood to just say no. Well, you're right, because Hollywood has become a business like it always was, but uh, it has become such a business with mergers and acquisitions and uh, companies forming other companies around other companies and the suits kind of running the show. And you're right about James Cameron. He's one of the few people that can stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, we're not doing it that way. Or, hey, wait a minute, I refuse to cut that corner. And if it means another eight or nine or $10 million till I get this 30 seconds right, uh, you'll just have to wait until I'm done. And who's going to argue with that? Because uh, this is one of the most successful films of all time. And the franchise likely will be one of the most successful of all time. Um, He's an exceptional person. Had the opportunity to sit in a workshop with him some years ago at at a movie festival and just listen to him talk about his craft. And he is a very smart, very sharp, very clever man at every level. I really am impressed with him and his work. Jazz is just, uh, it's going to be a worthwhile experience for sure. Yeah, well, I plan to get some tickets over the Christmas season to, to definitely go and watch. Uh, uh, Rick, thank you for your time. If we don't talk, uh, Merry Christmas to you and your family. Thank you so much. Hey, to you as well. Thanks a lot, Jazz. Well, you may recall BC Premier David Eby announcing a few weeks ago new measures to fix what has become an old problem in the province, a lack of homes for both existing and uh, expected residents. The NDP is hoping to get this done by building on legislation already in place uh, that required municipalities and regional governments to provide housing needs reports to the province by April 2020. 22 and every five years moving forward. Now, the plan is to have these reports reviewed by the provincial housing ministry, which will determine if a how if how uh, will determine if housing targets should be set for a particular municipality. So it's a bit of a it's part carrot and part stick. Now, it's an ongoing issue across the country, of course, as well, especially in Ontario. The debate is there, however, appears to be more stick than carrot. In many ways, Ontario. I would argue, provides a window into the fight that may be coming to BC between the provincial government and some municipalities. Ontario passed a housing bill Monday intended to spur development. The new law is just one move uh, among many uh, in a flurry of recent housing changes from Doug Ford's progressive conservative government, including plans to open some areas of the protected Greenbelt land uh, development and allowing the mayors, get this, the mayors of Toronto and Ottawa to pass bylaws with just one-third of council support. So in many cases, the mayor of Toronto, Ottawa, Hamilton as well, their offices will look like more uh, American mayor, uh, like what American mayors do. They have a lot more power in the U.S. So it's quite interesting that you can pass bylaws with just one-third of council support in certain major cities, Toronto and Ottawa, Hamilton as just three. Now, Premier Doug Ford uh, is making this push as his government attempts to get 1.5 million homes built in the next 10 years years to deal with the uh, growth projections there. Now, coincidentally, uh, Toronto Mayor John Tory uh, brought in his uh, 2023 Housing Action Plan to City Council yesterday. His message to his fellow politicians locally and to staff, Toronto should actually make an effort to get housing built. He said that the city must meet or exceed an ambitious goal of building 285,000 homes over 10 years. That's about, get this, a 60% increase 
over the past decade. Joining me now to discuss what's occurring in Ontario and what we might be able, what we might maybe expect, should expect here in Vancouver is Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News in Toronto. Colin, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, walk our audience here uh, in the Lower Mainland. Uh, give us a sense of what, how, just how loud the debate has been in Toronto and broadly in, 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 in the province of Ontario in regards to housing. Well, this has been a primary focus, I think, for a lot of people, uh, people who are looking to get into the housing market and for the governments that are looking to facilitate uh, the construction of as much housing as possible. The Ontario government set a, a, a target. They want to build 1.5 million houses over the next 10 years or so by 2031. Now, that's a huge target for them to be able to achieve by the end of that uh, de- the decade. And in order to do that, they need to make a lot of minor and major changes to convince developers to start building a lot more and to kind of put more of that responsibility onto municipalities. So one of the things they started doing was they started giving a lot of the larger municipalities, cities like Toronto, Ottawa, Hamilton, London, etc., some goals for how many houses the province wants those communities to build. And they want those communities to come back to the province with a strategy to say what they're going to do to actually build those houses. So those strategies could include something like what the city of Toronto is doing, which is to end the practice of exclusionary zoning, which means you know neighborhoods that typically have had single family homes can now, would now, uh, if the changes at the city council go through, would be able to you know, sustain much larger uh, developments, right? So maybe some fourplexes, small apartment buildings, certainly more than just having one family live on this plot of land that could you know, perhaps have three, four, five families living in that plot of land. Um, you know, other municipalities are also studying what they can do to kind of fast-track construction. And the province from a top-down level is also looking at speeding up the process, right, from conceptualization to actual construction to people moving in. They want to make you know, it as barrier-free as possible uh, to make sure that you know, developers have been incentivized and that you know, there is ultimately more homes being built. So one of the things, as an example, they're saying, development charges. Uh, right? They claim that development charges, which are charged to developers by municipalities, to help build infrastructure that supports those communities, the province is eliminating development charges to maybe convince developers to build a little bit more if they don't have to pay these millions of dollars in fees. So lots going on. A lot of it, though, I have to say, is very controversial. Uh, Now, at the end of the day, when you build a home, you still go to City Hall uh, and you need approvals. Uh, you said that they've encouraged or at least focused on some cities that they want to see more development from. One of them, of course, the city of Toronto. So would the mayor have uh, the power to push some of these things through because of what the provincial government wants to see done? Yeah, one of the things the province really wants to target here is uh, nimbyism, you know, not building anything in my backyard kind of a thing. And we've seen a lot of that in, in places like the city of Toronto, where you might have you know, some urban neighborhoods that might skew a little bit more middle class to higher income that want to keep their neighborhoods looking the way they used to look for a long time. Uh, and so the province wants to eliminate that kind of attitude. So what they're, they're saying to the city of Toronto is they're giving the mayor these incredible powers 
Um, he has strong mayor powers, John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, and he's got now the ability to pass bylaws with one third of the vote at city council. So if, for instance, there is a development proposal that's coming to a particular neighborhood that's facing stiff opposition, the mayor could, you know, using only a third of city council can actually push through that uh, that uh, construction project anyway, uh, basically overriding the rest of city council. Um, it is a very controversial measure, but one that the province is hoping will you know, be able to fast track uh, construction and really maybe quiet down any of those naysayers um, who, who might be opposing any kind of developments. And, and the province is kind of you know, in, in a bit of a, a tight spot, right between a rock and a hard place, because there are lots of communities that are saying, you are the ones responsible for facilitating all of this construction. But when the province says, okay, well, how about we put a building here and, and something else there, some of those same communities come back and say, no, 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 I, no we didn't mean here. We meant somewhere else. And, and I think that's where the province kind of finds itself in a, in a position of, uh, you know, uh, being you know, darned if they do and darned if they don't, where now they're trying to force this through by giving those uh, municipalities the power to actually push it through without any kind of pushback. Uh, is the premier uh, and the mayor's mayor of Toronto and some of these other big city mayors in Ontario, do they have the public on their side, uh, broadly speaking, uh, in regards to some of these controversial uh, policies? Well, there is a larger agreement in you know the the province in general that there needs to be more uh, construction and more housing being built. Right. You know, Toronto is one of those destinations, just like Vancouver, just like Montreal, uh, perhaps even uh, Halifax, where, you know, as as we see an influx of immigrants over the next uh, decade or so, you know, historically, these have been the major centers that people find community and, and want to go and settle and and, um, you know, build a build a, a future. But in doing so, there's obviously only a set amount of land and a set amount of housing that's that's available and a lot of it in toronto has been single family homes that that i mean still is the the, the gold standard for what everyone looks to achieve uh, the problem is is those houses are starting to become wildly unaffordable right we're talking about single family homes in a city like toronto that are you know going into not just the one millions two millions three millions and beyond and these houses you know you're not getting much more house for uh, for those millions of dollars and making people a lot of in reality house poor and so the idea here is build more housing not necessarily affordable housing just build as many homes as possible to make sure that you know the 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 market will dictate the, the the price of those homes and bring it down so there is agreement that that needs to happen but the way the province is going forward with it has definitely landed them in a lot of hot water because there are questions as to whether it's the province that's driving these plans or perhaps developers who are driving these plans, because developers stand to profit a lot. For the mayor of Toronto, you know, there have been a lot of accusations of being anti-democratic, because typically in Canada, you would have a 50% plus one that wins any kind of argument. Here, you would have, you know, 33% wins the argument of the day. And, and a lot of people are saying, well, that simply is undemocratic of, of the, the, the mayor of Toronto to have that. So, you know, it really depends on which, which way you, you, you land here, but there has been a lot of controversy and pushback about some of the plans that uh, the, the governments 
multiple have been making. Well, the similar talk similar talk is occurring here uh, in the Lower Mainland in British Columbia, and, and we're watching Toronto very closely because uh, you've brought in legislation, you're now moving forward with it, and we have been talking about it, and we expect more to occur uh, in the weeks and months ahead. So uh, we'll definitely be uh, keeping a close eye. Colin, appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. In an era when sugar is widely seen as enemy number one, sugar-free drinks and treats sweetened with low-calorie additives promise guilt-free sweetness. Now, some people deliberately choose low-sugar options in the hope of losing weight or managing diabetes. Others just enjoy the taste. But even if you aren't seeking them out, it's hard to avoid artificial sweeteners. The rise of sweeteners is in part a sign of the spectacular success of sugar taxes, which have been introduced in more than 40 countries since 2010. Now, by 2019, 60% of all the soft drinks sold by Coca-Cola and 83% of those sold by Pepsi were sugar-free. Well, in July, the World Health Organization sowed terror in the diet soft drink industry by issuing new draft guidelines on non-sugar sweeteners. Researchers for the WHO uh, conducted a vast new review of the scientific evidence examining hundreds of studies on the effects of sweeteners on humans. What they found was startling. Contrary to the claims so often made for them, the researchers found consistent evidence that consuming a lot of sweeteners was associated with an increased risk of type 2 diabetes. Similarly, when it came to weight, they found that people who consumed a lot of sweeteners were more likely to gain weight over the long term. Now, joining me now to discuss artificial sweeteners is Danny Renouf, dietitian at St. Paul's Hospital. Danny, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jazz. It's a pleasure. Uh, and now I got to admit to you before we uh, start this conversation, uh, I generally don't have any sugar in in my coffee. But uh, there was a time where I was uh, using sweeteners, uh, but my wife convinced me that it's not the right way to go either. And so okay. I took her advice. But uh, but I think it's a good conversation to have because I was recently reading an article in the Guardian and uh, fascinating information in regards to the sweetener business. Uh, uh, and the sugar business as well. So let's talk uh, first and foremost, are sweeteners okay to use instead of sugar? So I just want to make a distinction, right? We've got the the, uh, artificial sweeteners, and then we've got, so aspartame and saccharin um, being two of the main ones, um, and sucralose is another one. Um, And then we've got the naturally occurring ones, such as stevia and monk fruit sugar. I'm talking really when I say artificial sweeteners about those chemically modified ones, so the aspartame, the saccharin, and uh, the sucralose. Mm -hmm. And it's not that, you know, anything, there's nothing bad or good about food, right? It's really about the use, like what is the purpose of using an artificial sweetener? And I think people have been led to believe, you know, I will lose weight, I'll have better diabetes control, right? I'll be not using sugar, so that's better. I'll be lowering my sugar intake overall. So people have been operating under this assumption that if I just switch to an artificial sweetener, I'm being healthier, doing the healthier thing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people rely on beverages that are artificially sweetened. And so I I want to really tap into portion control. I want to tap into um, really understanding um, the usage and when we should use these sweeteners. Um, So the, the science is really showing that artificial sweeteners in high amounts, right? Like if we use them often, they're in our everyday life, they're in so many products that we buy. And if we buy more processed products, believe me, you're getting more artificial sweetening. Um, then we, I think we need to pause and think about the negative impact of having artificial sweeteners in so many of our foods. And the main one is that artificial sweeteners impact 
the gut health, the microbiome. So all the good bacteria in our gut, we're realizing now through the research that, that artificial sweeteners can actually disrupt that system in our gut. And so previously, we thought that there was no problem, no effect, no negative effect. And we're seeing this negative effect happening. And so here's someone with diabetes trying to protect their blood sugars, but in fact, their microbiome is getting disrupted. A disrupted microbiome means that people are at higher risk for heart disease, for diabetes, for other health complications long term. Mm -hmm. So if we're using artificial sweeteners in larger amounts, yes, we need to stop, pause, and think about the purpose of why we're using these. Uh, you, you said in uh, your comments earlier, uh, uh, I think you alluded to the World Health Organization in their own uh, comments on sweeteners, basically saying their new research or research they've, they've uh, certainly looked at, that it, it, it contrary to what the in- industry has been saying, it does increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. It, uh, prolonged use of sweeteners can impact your dental health over the long term. Uh, as well, and even long-term use uh, when it comes to um, one of the things they've always said is that it's it's great for your diet if you're trying to lose weight, but even long-term use of sweeteners can also uh, lead to weight gain as well. So it's it's contradictory to everything that the sweetening sweetener industry has been telling us. Absolutely, and you know what? Research builds on itself. As a consumer, you really need to be a skeptic. You have to check your facts, and online information is always changing. Some of it is not reliable. This is all changing research, right? Before, we didn't have research on artificial sweeteners. There was room to make claims, um, you know, from a business standpoint and an industry standpoint. There has now been a good amount of research that's showing, you know, the negative side of um, artificial sweeteners. So now the statements are changing again. I know that puts us all in a tailspin as consumers, but it's really important. And I love that you tapped into the weight loss Um, concept of using, you know, diet beverages uh, to lose weight. This is so problematic from a nutrition standpoint, because people will use these diet colas or diet beverages or unsweetened, you know, artificially sweetened beverages to to actually lose weight. Um, They're thinking, well, I'll replace the sugar beverage with this diet soda. In fact, any beverage other than water can displace nutritious food. None of these beverages contain any type of nutrition. They're devoid of nutrition or quality. Therefore, people are filling up on these. They may restrict help, you know, it may help restrict their intake, but then they're overeating later because they've basically starved themselves and just been using these diet beverages to quench their thirst and hunger. So it's very important. Again, we talk about usage. It's not appropriate to use these beverages as a weight loss mechanism. The best strategies for weight loss are ones we can sustain. It involves having a supportive healthcare team, and it really involves helping heal that microbiome. So eating more fiber-containing foods, eating more fruits, vegetables, whole grains, plant-based proteins like beans, lentils, tofu. These are very, very important foods that have a medicinal effect on our microbiome and help heal that microbiome, prevent diseases downstream. I think that's an important consideration because we need to look at the big picture of weight management um, and making sure people are nourished rather than restricted. I guess, Danny, part of the reason we've gotten here in regards to our, maybe an addiction is the right word, but our usage of sweeteners is that many governments, uh, certainly in the Western world, 
uh, started uh, taxing the sugar industry. There were sugar taxes for for soft drinks and that sort of thing. And I was looking at some of the numbers. By 2019, they had said 60% of all the soft drinks sold by Coca-Cola and 83% of those sold by Pepsi uh, were now being marketed as sugar-free, which, of course, means they're using sweeteners. Uh, and in many cases, even those energy drinks uh, that we uh, see at our saw, at our supermarkets are marketed as sugar-free. But once again, they're back to using those sweeteners as well. I guess that's one of the reasons why we've we become... Uh, we've been using these sweeteners so much, they become so prevalent. It's been a marketing exercise too. Absolutely. You know, I think, again, when something is in a package, us as consumers, we need to question, do we need this thing in a package? Okay. Can we simplify? Can we use a reusable bottle filled with water and throw in some pieces of fruit? Can we drink tea instead of using these already prefabricated beverages? Remember, they're replacing food, right? Nutritious food. So if you want more energy, if you want to feel better, if you want to go to that next level, you know, towards optimizing your health, you need to think about whole foods first. That's got to be paramount. If, if your cupboard is full of packaged and processed foods, is there a way you could simplify? And this doesn't have to cost you more. We're paying so much money for packaged products. Um, we're paying money for ingredients we don't want. So again, I encourage people to look at labels, read the labels, you know what to look for with artificial sweeteners, and try to simplify your beverages. I think this is an important piece that we have equated with health, and we, we should not have equations that it's this one food that's going to make us healthier. If I reduce sugar, I'm going to be healthier. It doesn't work like that. You have to look at a holistic approach to nutrition and health. And marketing taps into that, right? They tap into like, this is your magic bullet. If you just make the swap, everything will go away. And it's more complicated than that. I know nations uh, like even uh, Mexico uh, in 2020, where I was reading, um, are now labeling food and drink uh, containing sweeteners with a with a black warning sign saying containing sweeteners are n- and not recommended for children. So it's kind of like uh, mm-hmm. cigarette labeling. But what I, what I find interesting mm-hmm. is the impact of sweeteners on children. Uh, there was a study done uh, in the U- in, in Canada here that children whose mothers drank diet soda every day while pregnant were more than twice as likely to be overweight by the age of one. There was also analysis that pregnant women who cons- consumed a lot of sweeteners had a 25% higher risk of preterm birth. Uh, yet when you look at the supermarket, kids wanting to buy a monster drink or a Gatorade or, or a prime drink, which is I think the, 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 the drink to have based on my 13-year-old's uh, uh, comments to me, uh, all of them uh, have that sweetener. There is an addiction at its core when it comes to children that they, they uh, become focused upon or develop a palate for having sweetness all the time in their drinks or their food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think this is where you and I as parents can just start small. These can be grassroots you know, initiatives that we do so, so that we educate our children about the importance of food and the real sugar that is found in food. I hear all the time people saying, well, I have to restrict fruit because it's very high in sugar. I can't eat dried fruit because it's too sweet. I challenge that because you're getting so much more nutrition from natural sources of sugar than you are from Gatorade. And I see kids drinking these very large bottles of Gatorade and other, you know, uh, beverages uh, similar to it. And, you know, that's filling them up. That's taking up space in their bellies. They need that space 
for nutritious food. Start with your own children if you're listening now and just kind of speak to them, you know, instead of punishing them for choosing Gatorade, speak to them about the importance of real food and ask them to really tap into how these uh, beverages are affecting them and interfering with their sport performance, interfering with all sorts of things. Really, the only time Gatorade um, is useful um, is if you're doing very, very, you know, intense ultra marathoning. At that point, you can pretty much eat anything. But if you're a kid who's active, that Gatorade is not doing anything for you. And so there's many other nutritious snacks that are going to elevate your health, make you feel better, and um, not get in the way of nutritious eating. Do you think, um, as a dietitian and perhaps more as a mom, uh, that we should start labeling sweeteners or any, any product that has sweeteners, much like we have warning labels for cigarettes or, 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 or other products? Should we go there as, as a country? That is a really um, interesting question. I, I'm of the frame of mind that we cannot villainize food. I think that's so important. I think what we really need to do is give people the power back to make really good decisions for their health. And I think that comes through being educated ourselves, making sure we go to the right sources to get our information, and then to start conversations within our social groups, within our communities around how can we connect again with real food. The grocery store, unfortunately, today is not what real food is anymore. It's really, really difficult to navigate. I still do believe if you shop around the perimeter of the store, you're safe. Once you go down the aisles, it becomes a bit more tricky and you have to label read. But, you know, I think uh, stamping something as a villainous product or a black label or anything, I, I just, I'm not sure that's really tapping into the root of our, um, our needs and our needs are to, to get proper education so we can make good decisions. Well, Danny, it's a fascinating topic. Really appreciate um, your thoughtful comments on this issue today. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. A pleasure. Let's talk a little bit of social media now. Well, TikTok uh, specifically. TikTok's recommendation algorithm pushes self-harm and eating disorder content to teenagers within minutes of them expressing interest in the topics. New research suggests the Center for Countering Digital Hate found that the video sharing site will promote content including dangerously restrictive diets, pro-self-harm content, and content romanticizing suicide to users who show a preference for the material, even if they are registered as under 18. Now, for its study, the campaign group set up accounts in the U.S., uh, the U.K., Canada, and Australia, registered with ages of 13, the minimum age uh, for joining the service. It created standard and vulnerable accounts, uh, the latter containing the term Uh, lose weight in their username, which CCDH said reflected research showing that social media users who seek out eating disorder content often choose usernames containing uh, related language. Joining me now to talk about TikTok's algorithm and whether or not it promotes eating disorders and suicide is Jesse Miller, founder of Mediated Reality. Good afternoon, Jesse. Jazz, as always, thank you for having me. Yeah, I, I, I always enjoy our chats uh, and and uh, really uh, respect the sort of your your, your thoughtful comments on social media, which is so uh, prevalent in our lives. Uh, your thoughts, first of all, on this study. How much um, should we collectively be paying attention to it? Well, 
Okay, so it, this is a cyclical conversation, and it doesn't matter the platform. We have the same concern with Instagram pushing eating disorder content to users about four or five years ago. Um, and even before that, when Instagram was just in its infancy, we had major concerns about content that was supposed to be censored. But um, Facebook at the time was really having a, a struggle of how to censor uh, harm, harm, uh, self-harm content and eating disorder content from users. And if we go back 10, 15 years, we had the same issue with Facebook. And even going back 20 years, I think there was a MySpace study that came out as well. So the platform itself is benign. But one thing we have to keep in mind here is that TikTok's algorithm is so intuitive to the user that it dials into anything that the user is choosing to keep away from their everyday lives. So we're seeing that with aspects of relationships. We're seeing it with aspects of interests. And so you Google something, you search something on your mobile device, TikTok's algorithm is paying attention to that. And users have to keep in mind that when they are using outside uh, uh, applications, the TikTok application once on your phone or, or your, your laptop is paying attention to a lot of the things you do online and suggesting uh, content based on those searches that you do on any platform. Hmm. So in this case, uh, where uh, these people were registered with at the age of 13, which is the minimum age, um, should parents actually forbid kids to be, you know, for going on to social media at that age, or at least TikTok at that age, make, making them wait a few more years? No, no, not at all. And here's the thing. We have to keep in mind that we, we do know that the user themselves are, are going to be subject to a lot of influences in their everyday lives. And social media itself is, is, is somewhat, is somewhat uh, neutral. So if we go back to 1990 and your high school counseling office, most of that stuff is about uh, career placement, how to get your grades up, how to get some extracurriculars. There's not a lot about mental health. There's not a lot about eating disorders. There's not a lot about gender identity or sexual orientation. But today we have a lot more worry in our everyday lives about how kids are reacting to social media content because we're also encouraging other conversations. So if we hear a study that says nine out of 10 girls are dealing with body image issues and they're all citing Instagram as part of that dialogue, we don't have that narrative in 1990 or 1995 because the platform doesn't exist and the medium of communication doesn't exist. But if we ask the same people in 1995, hey, where are you getting these ideas of your body image? And they say, well, the magazines at the supermarket or what I see on television, Hmm. we can blame the medium. So within that, we have to keep in mind, kids who use social media are usually doing fairly impressive and pretty, you know, uh, uh, progressive things. But the reality of it is that kids who are prone to self-harm, kids who are prone to mental health issues, who are dealing with issues, they are going to find that content in other places. So those parents who are dealing with issues that their kids are very much kind of prone to have mm-hmm. to look for the red flags in a variety of spaces. It's not just the platform. So in this case, the report itself, uh, beyond what it says, it, it's really a, a call for parents to be much more vigilant uh, and aware of what their kids are doing and their behavior, uh, and as you say, uh, you know some of the things that they may that they may be prone to be involved in. It's really this is a, a sort of a reminder once again. It's still down to the parent in regards to keeping an eye on your child and seeing who they seeing what they consume. One hundred percent. And 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 again, with TikTok, we have to keep in mind that the algorithm is very intuitive. So there is going to be a little bit more of a concern compared to how a child is using Instagram and searching self harm content. So one of the things that parents can do here is just talk to their kids and say as equally, hey, how was your day at school? Or hey, how was your day with your friends? 
What did you do online today? Let's talk about that as a family. And the more that parents keep an open and safe space for their kids to talk about their internet experiences and not shame what their kids do or overreact, their kids are going to see their parents as a safe space. So if parents are seeing the red flags of an eating disorder or red flags of self-harm, and they can say, hey, you know, did you do anything on- online today that would maybe contribute to you feeling this way? Or are you subscribing to anything online that might make you think that your body image is inadequate compared to others? That's the path that helps kids know that parents care, that parents are looking for their best interests, and at the end of the day, that the way the kids are seeing the world through any lens isn't necessarily indicative of who they are, what value they bring to the world. Jesse, thank you. Thank you as always, Jess. There is talk the limits for taking liquids through airport security is set to be axed in the United Kingdom in 2024. If so, fingers crossed, one hopes Canada and the United States will follow. Now, rules which mean passengers must remove laptops from hand luggage can only take aboard liquids under 100 milliliters or all to go within Two years Now, major UK airports have been given a deadline of mid-2024 to install more advanced CT security scanners, similar to those used in hospitals, which will enable the change in policy. Joining me now to discuss the new rule changes is Claire Newell, president of Travel Best Bets. Claire, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Jazz. It's been a while. It has been a while, but no better time than now as, uh, as uh, the travel uh, season picks up with... Uh, with uh, Christmas holidays, and and this caught my eye uh, uh, recently. It looks like UK airports could ditch uh, the the uh, the luggage liquid rules uh, by 2024. And and as someone who at one time as a reporter was a frequent flyer, boy did I hate dealing with that all the time. And I know travelers still do. Um, first of all, is it strictly UK right now, or do you think other countries will follow? Well, it is strictly the UK that has come out with this information. And these, what they've got is equipment that is going to be similar to CT scanners that will be able to give a clear picture of what's actually inside carry-on bags. So, you know, this has been in place since November of 20, 2006. Okay, so it's going to happen in 2024. I thought this would be solved, have been solved a lot longer ago. Um, it was way back in 2026 that there was this plot that the um, was they were going to blow up 10 planes using explosives in drink bottles. And that basically changed the way that we pack carry-ons. And they have to be, and since then, have been in one-liter bags, clear zip-tops that have a maximum container that holds 100 milliliters. Mm-hmm. So, and that's just not gone away. And we as Canadians you know, keep this in mind over the holiday season. You still have to have that. You still have to pull it out when you are going through screening, unless you've got, you know, a, a, like a pre-clearance or maybe a nexus. But that's only in certain airports that have the technology. So it's really just rule of thumb. And if it goes away starting in 2024, even if it's just in the UK, they have some of the biggest airports in the world. I think it'll be a step in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even, uh, you know, uh, 2024, that's still 18 years of this incredibly frustrating rule. And usually, I mean, if Heathrow is one of the busiest airports in the world, UK, uh, obviously a very busy um, uh, country in regards to all of its airports, very busy in, in the major center of London. Uh, if they go, if they move forward, I'm going to assume uh, other nations will follow. So uh, that is actually yeah, w- wonderful news. 
Yeah, it's fingers and toes are crossed that it does spread, uh, and those those initial scanners work like a charm. Um, but you know what? Technology has improved, and just for those, I know we are coming up to the holiday season. If I can just sneak in a couple of things, um, technology is making it a lot easier for um, security screening in Vancouver. YVR has this new service called YVR Express. I think there's been quite a bit of talk about it, but just earlier this week, um, when it came initially came out in October, it was only for flights to the U.S. They've now added Canada. So I love this because you can pre-book your spot for um, security screening up to 72 hours before your flight. And then once you've done that, you get a time, you show a QR code, and you go into a, a quicker line. So anyone who's done this will have their, you know, their own quick line versus the normal line. So I would say do it if you possibly can. The other thing is, um, I don't know if you have heard of this or you've mentioned it on, on your show before, Jazz, but the mobile passport control app that's being used by the U.S. So you can submit passport and customs declaration information through that app in advance of your trip, and it really, really speeds things up. Is that is that new then, this, this passport app? Yeah, Wow. It's fairly new, and just because so many people haven't traveled, maybe until now, because they want to go somewhere over the holidays, uh, you know, you, if you haven't maybe downloaded this, what you're looking for on um, Google or your your app store through Apple is mobile passport control, MPC. You're not looking for like U.S. Customs or anything. That's what it will come up as. And then you you actually kind of create a simple profile, kind of like a RiveCan. Remember, you know, when, mm-hmm. when we were all using a RiveCan. And then um, when you're going, you, you do it in, in advance of your trip. The other thing is a RiveCan, just to remind people, can be used when you're returning from the U.S. or an international destination to submit customs information. And then um, also you can follow signs for advance CBSA declarations and express lanes, and you get through customs much quicker by using that. Not for the, the whole testing and COVID and that type of thing, but actually for customs now. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Now, one of the other things, of course, is we, you know, you, you, you and I have chatted, and, and we, you know, certainly on my part, I thought people would ease into traveling, but uh, when it was time to go, everybody was rushing <laughs> uh, to book flights to, to warmer climates, just to take a, take a break from Canada and our winters, cooler weather, and, of course, just wanting to do something fun having to deal with COVID. And I guess airline ticket prices have shot up significantly. I'm just looking at uh, a story earlier today from CNBC in the U.S. alone that airline ticket prices are up 25%, in many cases, obviously, outpacing inflation. Is this something that's going to stay for a while, do you think, or can things normalize? I do think they are going to go up. And I actually just read a, a publication called Air Monitor 2023. It was put out by American Express, Express Global Business Travel, and basically, they're saying in general, worldwide for next year, they expect air per, airfare prices to rise. There's a range of factors. The ones you would expect, just inflation, fuel costs, capacity issues. Um, so, and, and there's just a lot of demand. So I think for the next little while, you can expect that. But is it, it's a completely different story domestically within Canada. And it's, you know, I've been in the industry almost 30 years now, and the Canadian marketplace is, it is way over capacity. And if you think about it, we have our, our what we call our legacy carriers of Air Canada and WestJet. Mm-hmm. But pre-pan, pre-pandemic, we didn't commonly hear Swoop, Flare, Lynx, 
Canada Jetlines, which just last Friday did their uh, first inaugural flight between uh, Toronto and Vancouver. And then Porter Airlines announced just over the past couple of weeks that they're going to be flying. They used to fly, if you know, if you lived back east or you, you know, that market, they are, uh, they, they essentially uh, flew turboprops out of Billy Bishop Airport in Toronto, but mm-hmm. now they're, they've ordered these really cool Embraer aircraft and they're going to go across the country from Toronto Pearson. So they're starting Vancouver from Toronto Pearson, Feb 7th. Uh, Edmonton, Feb 14th, and Calgary on February 22nd. I mean, this just adds so much more capacity into the marketplace, and the introductory fares uh, are ridiculously cheap. I've been paying for my son to be going back east to university for the past four years, and now I'm seeing $69, $79, $99 each way between Vancouver and Toronto. Uh, They're not going to last. There's no way that they can sustain that, not with the fuel costs and just the cost of labor um, and running airlines. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. They're carving up market share right now. So if you can take advantage of it, do it. But um, uh, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in the Canadian marketplace over the next little while, because it has pretty much never been cheaper to fly across the country. Yeah, I've, I've been hearing about some of these numbers. I mean, it, Canada's, the, the challenge always in Canada, as you know very well, is we just don't have the density compared to the United States and certainly uh, not like Europe, which is famous for its very cheap fares, uh, uh, simply because of the amount of people they have in that small, smaller geographic area compared to us where... You've got 38 million people stretched over um, uh, five time zones. Um, in, in regards right. to these airlines, do you see uh, all of them surviving uh, even through 2023? Or do, could you see them one of them going away or even a couple of them going away as fast as, as uh, late 2023? You know, I hate to say it, but I, I maybe they'll find their whatever market is working for them and they'll each have their own routes that work. But having as many airs that are in the marketplace as there are now, I don't think they're going to be able to to sustain it. I hope they all survive. Um, but you've been you've watched and, and been in media for a long time, as long as I have, and you know we've seen airlines come and go. You think of the laundry list of airlines across this country that have uh, come and gone over the past thirty years, and it's mind blowing. It's a tough country to do business in as far as airlines are concerned. So my fingers and toes are crossed that they all make it and that, that they each find their own place. Uh, but I don't think they'll all be going across the country for long. There are, you know, some are, have been in business a lot longer than others. Some have deeper pockets. Some can try and knock other ones out of the marketplace, especially the big boys of WestJet and Air Canada. But even WestJet, we've seen really change focus. I mean, for next year, uh, for they're planning to really kiwash some eastern flights. So out of Toronto and Halifax, which I never thought would actually happen, um, they've they've cancelled flights out of Toronto to Edinburgh, Glasgow, Dublin, uh, Barcelona, London, Gatwick, and the same uh, a few destinations out of Halifax. And they're going to be using Calgary as their hub, which is awesome news for us living here in BC because it's way easier to connect in Calgary. Uh, especially if you're with kids and then you just continue on to Europe and sleep rather than having it kind of having a connection over Toronto or even in Europe, like through London or Paris or something. So it's going to be very interesting to watch. They announced uh, Calgary to Edinburgh and Calgary to Barcelona. 
that are brand new, and then they're just going to increase the frequency to other places like London, Paris, Rome, and Dublin. So very interesting to see what's happening here in the Canadian marketplace. Uh, is um, is the industry healthy in your mind, or is it? Uh, I mean, competition is great, and uh, yes, there's new folks carving out, uh, trying to carve out market share. But overall, mm-hmm. is the industry healthy, or is it still struggling because of COVID? Yeah, it's struggling. It's still uh, overall. I mean, they were. The, I think the last I heard was that the UN which is the United Nations World Tourism Organization, said that we were still only at 65% pre-pandemic for air travel around the world at the end of this year. That's what they're hoping to be. It's rebounding, um, but it was in such a dark place for so long. It was the first industry to be hit. I mean, we were canceling flights and, and trips in late January, early February in Asia, Prior to Canada putting down, you know, the gauntlet on March 13th of 2020, when everything shut down here, and it's it's a you know slow recovery. It's you're still dealing with um, with uh, labor shortages and fuel fuel costs are rough at the moment. So these are this is an industry that relies quite heavily on that. So uh, it will get better. It's you know, certainly nowhere near the dark place it was, but it it's, you know, it, it's still tough. A lot of uh, companies that are reporting revenues are, are still considerably down compared to what they were in 2019, recovering, but still down. Well, it's a fascinating uh, story, and uh, they are, as you say, recovering from a very difficult period, and, and we, we wish them all the best because they're so integral uh, in the movement of goods and services in our country, that's for sure. Claire, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Jazz. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.